Welcome to Pensive Series. Brad Templeton is a software architect, civil rights advocate, and entrepreneur. He is considered one of the early luminaries of Usenet and is known for his writings about political and social issues related to computing and networks. In this episode, we talk with him about his origins in the world of computers and the internet, his contributions and lessons learned along the way. Where, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Toronto. And how, how was it growing up there? Quite suburban. Um, it, uh, you know, it was um, uh, pretty, pretty much what you'd expect about suburban Canadian life. Uh, you know, very safe, uh, very uh, um, not in the United States, so not uh, uh, thinking of the country as the as the top country in the world, but uh, but thinking it's still nonetheless as the best country in the world. What was like a formative experience growing up? One of the biggest ones came in uh, when I was in grade nine, I guess, and I entered a contest that's put on by a Canadian university, sort of a national math contest, and um, didn't really think much about it until one day, uh, while they were now doing the announcements in the classrooms, they read my name out, and I couldn't figure out why. And so apparently, I'd placed uh, very highly, even though I was in ninth grade and the contest was for 11th graders, I placed very highly. And then uh, a couple of years later, I placed in the top in the country, and that meant I got invited to the university that hosts it and sort of to live there for a week and really experience academic life for the first time, because high school wasn't challenging me that much. I know some people will be annoyed to hear that, but the reality is, sometimes it doesn't. And... Uh, and so that's where I was first introduced to a computer. I mean, these are in the days before everybody had a computer in their house. Um, I was first introduced to all sorts of new ideas, and um, yeah, that, that had a big uh, effect on the direction of my life. And then how did you think about college and that life after high school? I ended up going to that university, which is the reason they do this. It's their uh, sort of, they're trying to recruit uh, a few bright sparks if they can find them. And uh, yeah, no, no, that was, that was different. That was a real challenge. High school had not been a challenge, but uh, that world uh, was challenging and fun and, you know, lots of other things besides academia to do, uh, theater and social life for everyone. It's, uh, I, I think, I don't know if there's a sexual difference there, but uh, it seemed at the time that for men, at least, that you formed the biggest bonds of your life during that period. Well, women do that too, but they they also seem to form some bonds in high school, uh, and they still have friends from high school, which I I have one friend from high school, I guess. And then, what, what was the biggest thing you learned in, in university about life? The biggest thing I learned. Well, one of the things I learned was that there was, you know, I had a lot more limitations than I realized I had, because uh, as I said, high school wasn't challenging at all. So being in classes where suddenly you were failing unless you worked hard, that was that was a big revelation. Uh, at the same time, though, I also uh, was trying to build my little software company while being in university, and I was working for the first PC software company. It was called uh, Personal Software, later Visicorp, and most people know it because of Visicalc, which is a spreadsheet program, and I was their first employee, and I... Uh, 
helped demonstrate VisiCalc actually here in Manhattan at its launch in 1979. I'm just a teenager, so that's uh, pretty heady stuff. And um, you know, this is the days when Microsoft has a 10 by 20 booth and we have a 10 by 10 booth, so it's pretty different. But in the course of working with that company, and I wrote the VisiPlot program for the IBM PC and did a few things like that, which again was pretty high level stuff for someone who's uh, 20 years old to do. Um, they gave me uh, an account on this thing called the ARPANET. Actually, the guys who made VisiCalc did that first, and then later I had one for the work with this company. And there I started encountering people talking to each other over the network, uh, at those days mostly mailing lists. Um, you guys missed your radio call. <laughs> Let's just pause um, that and I'm going to... But I'll finish this in a second. And I had this revelation, a revelation many people have had, that, wait a minute, these computers, yeah, the, is this, is this going to work all right? I don't know. That's it, it should be fine. I had this revelation that um, many people have had. These computers, sure, they're fun to program, fun to make games on, fun to do, you know, are useful for applications, but their real purpose is talking to other people. And I just had that revelation earlier than a lot of people, because this is, this is uh, 1980. And... Uh, and so I immediately sought to bring this network that I discovered to my university when I went back to it for uh, fourth year. And uh, so I did, and uh, became actually one of the first uh, sort of international connections between countries, uh, and then got very active in that, and that took over my life, yeah. And how did you discover what you were really good at? How did I discover what I'm really good at? Is there like a story or a turning point that... Well, so until I... I mean, I always was pretty cocky and thought I was pretty good at things. And school was never hard and uh, I would always get top grades. And I didn't really understand why all these other people felt that they had to work to get the grades because... Um, well, I'm going to sound like an asshole in saying this, but... Uh, you know, when I was in math class, they'd give us five minutes at the end of the class to start work on the problem set, and uh, I would close up my books in two minutes, and the, and the teacher would say, aren't you going to do the problems? <laughs> I, I, I did them. Um, it was just, to me, that was always something that was really obvious and clear, and the people hearing this who thought, oh my God, I have worked so hard to do math, are going to say, what, who is this guy? Why is he so full of himself? But that was how it was, and I, and I suddenly realized, well, okay, obviously this is a is not something everybody has, um, and uh, but I had all been interested in all sorts of, of things like that. Uh, pick up a lot of things pretty easily, uh, and I've never been any other way, so I didn't really discover it. The only thing I discovered because of the contests was that this was particularly unusual. And how did you think about your life after university in terms of how to spot opportunities and, and then engage with life in the future? Well, I haven't always made the best choices in life and, and from a technology and business standpoint, I've passed up immense opportunities. I, I, can, I can count, I need more than one hand to count the, the billion dollar opportunities that I was very close to and, and, uh, and missed. Um, but... What, what do you think you missed those uh, at the time? You know, it's... Uh, some of it is uh, thinking there was something even bigger going to come along, so not recognizing that the right thing was there. Uh, you know, some of it's just the path of history. Uh, I was friends uh, with uh, Sergey Brennan and Larry Page, and when they started Google, I 
liked it and wanted to give them money because uh, I had actually sold a business at that point. And, uh, and they had uh, filled out the first seed round of money for Google, so they didn't need the money. And, you know, if I have a time machine, I'm going to go back and say, hey, push harder on that one. It's pretty good. But, how, you know, nobody, nobody knew. And the truth is, I actually thought um, that the reason it was a good investment was that very quickly it could be sold for, like, $50 million within a year, and that one of these other companies doing search would do that. And Larry said, no, I'm not interested in that at all. I want to own search. And uh, Larry was right. <laughs> he said, uh, but I mean, don't don't think that Larry didn't know from the beginning what he was going to do because he did. So then, how did you like develop your strategy um, in your career to like carve out your own path? Well, I've always been attracted at um, wanting to do something that was, you know, really big, uh, and uh, so and probably for now the biggest thing that I have done was founding the first internet-based business uh, and that was not a stroke of genius by any stretch of imagination it was being in the right place at the right time I got to be the first because I was the first to figure out how to get around the rules that had been put in place saying no commerce on the internet so there was an acceptable use policy and I was trying to do I was not the only one trying to do a business on the internet uh, And I talked to the people who were managing the policy and said, look, if I did this and this and this, would it be within the policy? And I got something which they said yes to, and so I went out and did a business. So obviously from that, I mean, uh, if, if I could pretend to be the, the father of internet-based business, which, is, which would be much too grand a claim, that would be an immense thing to think you've done in your life. But of course it wasn't. There were many people trying to do it. I was just the first who figured out a particular way. And then a, a strange series of accidents even led me to it simply because I was, like many people today, spending much too much of my time on the internet, and I said to myself, I've, I've either got to make a business on this thing or I've got to get off of it because it's going to suck up my brain and distract me from the things I have to get done in my life. Now, nope, these days, people don't say that because they, the internet has become the thing they feel they have to get done in their life. That's how they socialize with their friends. It's how they do their job. It wasn't that way then. Back then, you had another job, and this internet thing was a distraction. So, um, you know, I've... Um, But I've, yeah, I've, I've always wanted, I, I got the, you know, some of it was lucky opportunities. Uh, I mean, getting to be at the dawn of the PC uh, software world was, uh, I, did, I didn't realize that was special, though, because uh, it was, as I say, it was just, uh, you know, everybody was liking these new personal computers, this, this new Commodore Pet and this Apple II and, and everything, and everybody wanted to make things for them, and uh, I was one of many people doing that. Um, and I tried to revolutionize the telephone and I failed at that uh, and uh, I've been also uh, uh, pleased with even though I haven't been doing any of the work with playing a role in the Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, which has made a real difference for civil rights uh, in the online world It's, uh, we're, we're a little over 25 years old now and uh, I've been involved with it for around 20 Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's had a really positive effect, which is good to have even, you know, uh, as I said, the, 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 the staff did all the real work. But. So can you walk us through, while you made that first big contribution, how did the environment feel? Like now, my generation, or now the Internet is, everybody takes it for granted. But yeah. You described that a little bit. Can you walk us more? How did that feel? Like, you, you know, it was so early, and you saw this opportunity, and, and you, were, you were, like, in action... 
Well, as I said, that, that really began uh, many years before when I, I had this realization that the purpose of computers was to communicate with other people rather than to just run applications on them, which is what most people thought at that time. And so I got involved in the nascent communities. And there was one main community, which, in fact, one could hanker down to the days when the Internet was a small town, and there was really only one place where people gathered, virtual place. Uh, it was called Usenet, and it existed, actually, it began outside of the Internet, but it uh, quickly became tightly associated with it and became the seat of community for the Internet. So I was involved there, and uh, uh, I was, uh, uh, got reasonably well-known because I was one of the first people to get banned for publishing offensive stuff on it, and when you're banned, actually, there's a thing called the Streisand effect. Well, it was named much later, but I was uh, subject to that in the sense that uh, the fact that someone tried to ban me made me the most widely read thing there was, and uh, that led me to this thought that I've got to see if maybe I can do this as a business, although I'd had it in the back of my mind for a long time, as everyone else had, and that time my business was running, running software packages. I wrote a lot of software packages, sold them. You know, the, the old days people used to buy software in stores and they paid money for it. It's a, a physical store, um, not app stores. Those didn't exist at that time. And, uh, but the, um, at first I thought, you know, I could do an internet service provider and a, another, I discussed it with another fellow who did it and he actually did very well. They made a billion dollars uh, doing the first internet service provider. But I said, okay, I can go and do uh, the first sort of news service on there. And, and did, didn't make a million dollars. But uh, it was nonetheless for, by the old standards, quite good. I mean, it doubled every year. It was profitable from the beginning. That's actually turned out to be a mistake. Everybody else lost money hand over fist and got it from the venture capitalists. And I was still a little bit old-fashioned in thinking you'd build a business the way you would build, traditionally build a business, but bootstrapping it and, and making money from the, or investing the profits and making it happen. But anyway, so you don't, I don't know if you know that's what's going on. I mean, although I think I think it's fair to say that everyone knew that the internet was going to be really big, and that's why we were all attracted to it. That's why we were all on it. In fact, there were mailing lists in the late seventies and early eighties where uh, we discussed this thing all the time. We called it WorldNet. That was our name for it, and it was this big network that connected everybody in the world, and you did all your banking on it, and you uh, you had a social life on it, and you bought things on it. And we all knew that was coming. Uh, there's a lot of people who say, oh, no one expected the Internet to be one. No, no, lots of people expected that. That didn't take any particular genius to expect. So when you look back, <laughs> when you look back, what do you, what do you feel most proud about? What do you feel most proud about? Well... I mean, I think, I think I'm still pretty proud of building Firenet, which was that early uh, dot-com company. Uh, and I built it... Um, I mean, I don't want to denigrate my staff, but I, you know, I pulled it up to quite a level with just myself, and then I hired people in to, to help us build it even more, and they worked hard. Um, but I was doing... You know, I was writing the software and selling and doing the deals and everything else, right? It was uh, which is normal in the... Your sort of small startup, and uh, so that was that was, yeah, that's an achievement to have some pride in. Uh, I mean, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, 
I have some anecdotes from it that I think are quite interesting to be proud of that uh, relate to uh, building something very reliable. Uh, so when I built the news network, I m started in Canada, I moved to the United States. And the process of doing that basically meant duplicating what I had at the original office in the new office in California. But then what I did with that was I had them both operating in parallel. And this is, um, I meant that idea, but um, it was a little more radical in those days. And so the way the software worked, it was fairly easy so that each office could produce all the news stories and feed them out to the customers and it, just whichever one got their first one. And so the reason that was good was you literally could nuke either of the two cities and the system would work. And one day I without knowing it, got into a contract dispute with one of my main news providers. And uh, I didn't know it because I, a hotel I'd stayed in had not passed me the message from them saying they really wanted to talk to me while I was in town. And so, to my great surprise, one day I noticed that the news feed had stopped in California. Now, the system didn't pick up because it was still coming in Canada. Everyone was still getting the news. And I called them up and said, oh, we have a technical problem for some reason. I said, no, we don't have a technical problem. We're canceling it. I said, what? Well, i got to fix that. And I was immediately scrambling to fix that. But at the same time, the system was still going. And they were actually kind of puzzled. They said, we shut you off. We don't understand how you're still doing this. And in three days, I made a contract with someone else to get their news legally another way so that I could keep going because I was sort of technically a legal gray area for those three days. But here was something that was quite interesting. I built a system that was so reliable that even the people authorized to turn it off had not been able to turn it off. And I decided that was a... That was a uh, the creation of a new level of uh, reliability in computers, which you don't actually want. I decided to name it after a Star Trek episode, which nerds will all recall. It's, uh, what's it? I don't remember the title of the episode, but it's about a computer called M5 that runs the Enterprise. Are you nerdy enough to remember this episode? No? Well, anyway, there's a scene, of course, where Captain Kirk, uh, this computer is supposed to run the Enterprise and replace the crew, and Captain Kirk, it's He's misbehaving, and Captain Kirk orders one of his red-shirted security guys, you already know what's going to happen when I've told you this, to turn it off. And, of course, it, it happens, it vaporizes the guy when he's trying to turn it off. And so this is a computer that can't be turned off, and one of the earliest ones from science fiction. So I decided that was a, a new level of reliability when even the people who were supposed to be able to turn it off couldn't turn it off. So on that topic, what has, what has inspired you, like, in terms of, like, some sort of fiction or people or some sort of heroes or characters... Um, well, I'm very interested in the nature of consciousness and mind and in uh, what it means uh, to have minds that are based on other than wet bags of protein that we are, digital minds either uploaded or created synthetically as people are trying to do. So I'm very interested in the explorations and philosophy around that and the fiction around that and uh, uh, there's a Uh, there's a, a lot of that. I actually in, uh, published, uh, in the publisher sense, not in the writing sense, uh, a bunch of that. One of the side tasks I did in the early 90s was I decided to do a giant ebook anthology. And uh, at the time, I'm pretty sure it was the largest uh, ebook anthology of current fiction made. Because there's an award in science fiction, it's called the Hugo Award, and every year it's, uh, there's a set of nominees, and people vote, and they pick the winner. 
And so I said, What's, what if I could make a, an electronic anthology of all of the nominees and then people could actually get them and read them and vote uh, informally because in the past you couldn't. You'd have to actually go to the bookstore and some of them would be expensive and hardcover and so you couldn't really get a good vote. So I said, I'll do that. And uh, in just two weeks after the nominations was, were announced, I was able to get contracts with, all, with everything. In fact, I was just going to do the short fiction and then the novel guys approached me and said, hey, you can do the novels too. So they were kind of interesting because nobody had done any books really before at that point. And uh, it turned out to be a big mistake to take the novels because it, it like, quadrupled the amount of work it was for not, I mean, it still would have been a big achievement without them and it was, it was a little bit bigger achievement but four times as much work. So don't do that. Understand what you're doing there. But uh, now that was not a success. It was not a failure. It broke even. Uh, but I did two things. I made a CD-ROM, for those who remember CD-ROM, and I also made it available online on the internet. You could download it. And I sold a few thousand CD-ROMs, so enough to pay for that. But I sold like 20 downloads. And I said, oh, okay, this, the world is not... Because I had planned a much bigger... I had planned a project... There are actually several projects like this now, but the project was called The Library of Tomorrow, and it was all the fiction you could read for a flat $5 a month. And I was going around saying, information doesn't want to be free, it wants to be $5. And uh, this, so there's a lot of people playing with this idea these days, actually. Uh, but anyway, it was... Among the things that I published in that was a novel called A Fire Upon the Deep, written by Werner Vinci. And Werner had written the novel like a programmer full of comments. Uh, like he'd have his text and then there'd be little comments like hashtag comments and he would just remove them all before he sent it off to be published so he let me take that and put all the comments in as hypertext so you could read the novel and then you could click on the side and you could mm. see what was the author thinking when he wrote this but that's actually also a seminal novel in terms of thinking about networks and uh, super intelligence and so on so uh, you asked me about sources of that and I was reminded of this particular one which I got to play some role in, uh, uh, and that's uh, and Werner's a great writer. There's a number of other, I mean, I've got to be friends with a lot of the people who write this stuff in the course of doing this, which was interesting too. So going back to consciousness, how would you define consciousness, and how, how, what do you, how do you see the evolution of consciousness? Well, that simple question: How do we yeah. define consciousness? And actually, you answered it already, which was pretty <laughs> great because. I think central to answering that question, I actually don't know if I have an answer for it. Nobody has an answer that satisfies other people because people argue about the definition of consciousness all the time. But one of the things that's very important to me in the discussion of consciousness is understanding that it's a natural thing. I don't think it's a soul or something supernatural. Some people do. It's a natural thing. And so it must have evolved. It must have had conveyed some reproductive advantage, either natural selection or sexual selection, which are the two ways we get uh, evolution to happen. And so I think that's kind of interesting because I don't think we think about that as much when we study consciousness. We, we don't think of it as this, this thing that had a purpose. We think of it as us. We think, I am this consciousness. They know. I mean, we have similarities in our definitions. We usually relate it to the inner dialogue within ourselves, our sense of self and our self-awareness. You'll hear those terms all the time in most definitions of consciousness. But mostly they're around the terms of that, that my consciousness is me, right? 
And so we don't think about it as much as this is this thing which clearly must have evolved. It clearly must have had a value. It was either valuable to be able to introspect or maybe it was sexy to the opposite sex to be able to, you know, you know talk someone into you know, having sex with you or however it was that it played a role. Somehow it played a role. We don't know the answer to that, but the evolution of consciousness I think is very important. Now the other thing that's a very common misconception is there's been some research done which freaks people out. And it's about the fact that when you look inside the brain to the limited extent that we do, that it's very clear that many decisions in the brain are made before our consciousness is aware of them. And so some people have even started saying, oh, we're just the queen who thinks she's directing parliament, but parliament's actually in charge of the queen is just giving <laughs> a speech. You must have seen this before. And to me, when I saw this, I had the reverse reaction. I said, well, of course. How could, there, how could it not be that there's something underneath the consciousness? Because the consciousness clearly isn't your whole mind. That's what I'll call soul thinking, right? People who think that, that you, you have a soul and that's where you reside. But since I think you reside in your brain, Clearly the consciousness isn't all of the brain, so therefore there must be stuff going on underneath. And of course that stuff has to happen before the conscious thought happens. Thank you for listening and see you next time.